0: Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where every Thursday we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. So Lauren, what's on deck for this first Journal Club of 2021? The scientific story of 2020 was undoubtedly the work to understand, treat, and vaccinate against COVID-19. So today, we're talking about one of the enduring mysteries of this disease, which is why some people get a severe disease that can be fatal, whereas the majority experience a very mild or even asymptomatic disease. So are we beginning to understand what underlies this discrepancy? Well, as we discuss in this episode, it is definitely a combination of different factors. I'm joined today by Dr. Helen Su, chief of the human immunological diseases section at the NIH and co-leader of the COVID human genetic effort. This international collaboration set out to investigate whether there is a genetic component to severe COVID. And we're discussing two articles published by this group, both identifying that dysfunction in a very specific part of the immune system leads to severe COVID, but through two different mechanisms. We break down these two mechanisms how these results can inform treatment, and how this collaboration was able to uncover these important findings in record time. We begin with what we know about the predisposition to severe COVID.
1: The question comes from this observation that only one or 2% of people who get infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that is responsible for the pandemic, end up in the ICU or die of this infection. Why is there so much difference?
0: Is it possible that these differences are due to the virus itself or the dose of the virus, or is it something in the host physiology that's underlying this discrepancy? Probably
1: uh, the answer is both. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, science, we, it's always both. Yes. Yeah. We know in, um, in lots of studies, especially in animal models of infection, that amount of virus That you expose an animal to is a big factor. More virus usually ends up with worse disease. So that's one possibility, but there are other factors like age, certain uh, pre existing medical conditions, and then male sex was also associated. Those risk factors contribute, but they're not the sole determining factor. And we know from our own experience in the field, genetic factors can also be major players. And that's where we set our studies out.
0: So what do we know about the genetics that lead to a susceptibility to severe infectious disease?
1: Most of our knowledge comes from studying um, patients with rare inherited immune deficiencies. And this field started out looking at patients with like a severe combined immunodeficiency, which is, you know, a very rare disease. It causes a bubble boy syndrome. And those people tend to get sick with all sorts of Viruses, bacteria, et cetera. Okay. But as we study these patients more, we kind of realize that some of these patients with these inborn areas of immunity can also have problems with a much narrower spectrum of infectious agents. And one particular class of these, they actually have mutations and genes that are important for intrinsic or innate immunity. So these patients generally seem healthy because they don't have big problems. With large parts of their immune system crippled. It's this particular part of the immune system that recognizes the microbes and responds in a pathway that's not completely compensated by the multiple genes in the immune system.
0: So, the initial understanding that genetics can predispose you to infection came from studying these people who have, you know, these ultra rare mutations in their genome that leads them to be just prone to everything. You know, the classic example is the bubble boy who like any exposure to any kind of microbe whatsoever was going to lead to a very severe infection. That's the worst case scenario, but there's a spectrum from like bubble boy to like totally healthy human person and kind of in between there there are these variants, these mutations in the genome, which can predispose you to be more susceptible to an infection by a specific pathogen. And in this particular case, you're looking to see the people who have severe COVID, do they have mutations that predispose them to get severe COVID that, you know, kind of look similar to what we've seen before with these patients who have these like rare severe diseases.
1: Exactly. And we have hypotheses about which genes or which subsets to focus on based upon a large body of work that really pointed to the pathway that we should be first looking at, which is the type 1 interferon pathway.
0: It's kind of like, instead of giving like the entire human genome or even the 1800 genes that we know are involved in immunity and saying... Out of all of these genes, out of all of these possible mutations, which ones are predisposing for severe COVID, it's instead taking this subset that we know are involved in predisposing people, kind of focusing your search in that area. So the type 1 interferon system seems to be very critical. Can you talk to me about this system, kind of what's its function in normal innate immunity? The type 1 interferon pathway is a way that the body recognizes
1: that there is a virus infection and it allows the body to respond very quickly. Even before classical cells of the immune system, the white cells such as the cytotoxic T lymphocytes that kill off virus infected cells, the B cells that make antibodies that neutralize the virus, those things take time. And so your body can't wait that long for it to do something about a virus. So this part of immunity is actually occurring in cells that you don't usually think of as being part of the immune system. These are cells that get infected. So it could be a respiratory epithelial cell, like you breathe in SARS-CoV-2 or influenza infects that respiratory epithelial cell. And that actually triggers a series of events occurring within the infected cell. So the cell, first of all, recognizes things such as double-stranded RNA that is made in the process of a virus replicating within that cell. There are sensors within the cell that recognize that, and then they turn on the production of these type 1 interferons. So the interferons, they interfere (laughs) by, they actually are secreted by the cells, right? They can actually act on neighboring cells who are not infected, so it sort of spreads the signal to other cells at risk and through signaling pathways that ultimately actually inhibit viral replication. Okay. And then those uh, genes that are turned on, a lot of them are pro-inflammatory cytokines. They get secreted. They call them the rest of the immune system.
0: Yeah. I've heard of the innate immune system described as, as like the scouts on the battlefield. The innate immune system isn't, you know, necessarily expected to completely block an infection, but it's supposed to kind of keep it at bay and give the, you know, the host enough time to educate its adaptive immune system. You know, that's the T cells, that's the antibodies, because that kind of education takes time. And so what the interferons are doing are kind of that link between the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. If you get rid of interferon signaling in any way, that will lead you to have a severe infection, like what we're talking about with severe COVID. Spoiler alert. So now that we have this background on what severe COVID is, why some people might be predisposed to it, what we know from studying other diseases of the immune system, and how important interferon signaling is to a successful immune response, let's dive into these two articles. So the first one is looking for... Whether inborn errors, so mutations in the genome, are the reason why some people get severe COVID. Can you describe how you set up the study? What's integral to the study
1: is that it is an international collaboration in which we can look at enough patients who have rare gene mutations and derive conclusions that can be generalized to other patients. Okay. So we started out with the hypothesis, again, the type one interferons defects in this likely lead to susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2. And we decide to look specifically at 13 genes in this pathway. There's a group of investigators within the consortium that really focused on the bioinformatics aspect, and they were looking for very rare or novel mutations. But we actually didn't confine ourselves to the most rare mutations because unlike the bubble boy, for instance, you know, susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 leading to death is rare, but it's not ultra rare, right? So essentially we were looking as a group for enrichment of these, what we thought were rare enough and likely to contribute to uh, defects and interferon production and responsiveness.
0: So you started with this amazing international cohort of patients who have severe COVID, and you're looking in these 13 genes, which were those involved in type 1 interferon signaling for variants. But of course, there are tons of variants in the human genome. And I think this is really interesting because you weren't looking for common mutations because getting severe COVID is not that common but you weren't looking for ultra rare mutations because getting severe COVID is not ultra rare. So you're in this kind of middle ground and looking to see, okay, do we see this group of mutations more frequently in the people with severe COVID than we do in people who got asymptomatic or healthy individuals? And it's that kind of enrichment of variation in those genes that pointed you to say, yes, these genes are involved in the predisposition for severe COVID. So what did you find from this analysis?
1: It was really exciting because the initial discoveries of the first patients uh, that had these variants that were uh, very interesting included one patient from our cohort in Italy who actually had a mutation that had already been described in a patient with life-threatening flu. It got us really excited, and it was followed up by additional variants that, uh, you know, if you look computationally, they fit the bill. And um, then we did experimental validation to show how that influenced outcome to uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus replication.
0: You found the actual mutation that predisposes someone to severe Influenza can predispose them to severe COVID. So that's a really great validation that this approach is working, that you're identifying functional variants. Exactly. But some of your variants that you found were novel, they hadn't been linked to disease. So, how did you test whether these variants had an actual effect on the protein that they were encoding versus just being kind of something that silently carried along?
1: Yeah, the validation is extremely important. So, I think you got all these suspicious. Potentially deleterious variants. That, given the time issues, like and this is a pandemic, we don't have years to study that. We focused mainly on the variants that resulted in complete loss, because it was much easier to demonstrate. We showed by measurements directly from patient cells that they were defective in production of interferon or responses to interferon. And then ultimately, and the main question was SARS-CoV-2. So you know, we worked with Charlie Rice's group, and they uh, helped do some infection studies in actual patient cells, showed that the virus was not well controlled in these cells. And then if you restore the gene, this is the ultimate test, you can restore function. So the virus replication is suppressed again. So that's that, the that whole train of thought leading the genetic change. What does it do to the cell's in an artificial system. And then with actual patient cells, can you really attribute it to that variation? Can you correct for it? So those are the types of studies that were also necessary.
0: Well, you, you talk about like, this is a pandemic, we're trying to do this fast. Like, this is also a lot of validation. Like that is a very impressive experimental scope to go from an in vitro study to, you know, taking the patient cells and looking to see how they respond to actually doing the genetic restoration of these to have that, you know, gold standard level of evidence that this variation is causing this phenotype. I'm extremely impressed. (laughs) So you found these deleterious variants in 3.5% of your patients with severe COVID that you studied. Were you surprised by this result? Did you think that this was more than you expected or less than you expected? I think it's
1: much more than what we would have expected based upon our initial studies. And actually, I think it's an underestimate because we just focused on the ones that were very easy to look at, right? And it's likely that there will be other variants that um, because they were not so obvious, were also contributing in a way.
0: right. So the work in this first paper found these genetic defects and these key proteins of the interferon system that are the reason why some people get severe COVID. And this leads us to the second study, which was looking at a different mechanism that could impede the interferon response. So tell me about this mechanism and what inspired you to investigate it on top of the genetic defects. This is really a
1: reflection of our perspective of people who work in the field of monogenic inborn areas of immunity. It turns out there's also precedent That you can have defects not through gene mutations, but defects through the production of autoantibodies, antibodies that bind up those cytokines and neutralize those cytokines. So it was natural for us to think, as these genetic findings were coming out with type 1 interferon pathway gene defects, whether you could also get the same outcome, life threatening COVID 19 disease, if you had defects that were due to autoantibodies, right? So they're acquired defects, not inherited defects.
0: So from previous research, we had known that mutations in the proteins that make up the interferon signaling pathway could lead you to a higher susceptibility for severe infectious disease. But we also knew that having antibodies, autoantibodies, so your immune system incorrectly recognizing yourself as foreign... You could have these autoantibodies to these same proteins and that would have the same effect. It would block the signaling. It would lead to a disruption in your immune response. It would let the virus proliferate and expand and cause you to be much sicker. So in the first paper, you looked at the genetics. And in the second paper, you're looking, do people have these autoantibodies? So how do these autoantibodies arise?
1: We think in many cases that probably autoimmune tendencies are due to some genetic factor because you have genes that tell the immune system to be more reactive and they could contribute to the ultimate development of autoantibodies. But most people with autoimmune disease, we haven't figured out, you know, what's the, the cause of that. And it's generally thought to be acquired, like you aren't born with these autoantibodies. And most people who get autoimmune disease, you know, will probably develop as they get older. And as you get older, you tend to have more autoreactive cells as well. So in this way, there's a certain chance here that you will develop autoantibodies that are reactive to type 1 interferons, but they're acquired over time. And they're probably not predetermined that you will get that particular reactivity.
0: Right. There are genetic defects that can predispose you or can cause you to generate self-reactive antibodies. But there are also cases where either we don't know if there's a genetic defect or there's a non-genetic defect. So autoantibodies can just kind of stochastically arise in your system. Normally they are cold through different mechanisms, but as you age, those mechanisms kind of weaken. And so you tend to generate more autoantibodies as you age just naturally. So it may be the case that there is an autoantibody that seems to be maybe kind of frequent that hits a protein of the interferon signaling and blocks its function and then dysregulates the interferon pathway leading to, you know, predisposition to severe COVID. Yes. So let's talk about how frequent these autoantibodies were. It was pretty surprising, right?
1: (laughs) Exactly. 10% of the critically ill patients with SARS-CoV-2 had these autoantibodies. So that's quite a sizable proportion.
0: Right. And one thing that I found really interesting is that 94% of the people who had these autoantibodies were men. And we know that men are more likely to get severe COVID. So do you think that these autoantibodies are you know, playing a really causative role in that reason why men get it more than women?
1: Yeah, that's one obvious idea is that because of the overrepresentation, that that is a contributing factor, maybe part of the mechanism. Yes, what's actually causing that, uh, that's to be determined. It could be genetically based, it could be you know, hormonally based, we don't know quite yet. The other thing interesting is you usually think that autoimmune disease is usually associated with women, right? But in this particular case, it's happening in men. So that's a sort of curious uh, observation there. How
0: do you explain that? Future research project. Exactly. Yeah. So we know that, you know, your standard non-self-reactive antibodies are produced in response to pathogens. Were these auto antibodies produced in response to COVID-19, or do we think that they were pre-existing?
1: We have limited data suggesting that they were pre-existing. So I think there were a few patients, maybe two, who actually had um, samples of blood taken before they even got SARS-CoV-2 infected. And so those were retrospectively tested and those autoantibodies were present. But that's the big question is why now? If it was there beforehand, why didn't they get Severely sick with flu or something else. So, there are many questions that this raises, but through some validation studies that were done, we know that um, it was able to neutralize type 1 interference. And it's really at those very first steps of infection that it's especially needed. So, that all kind of argues that having those outer antibodies before were critical to outcome.
0: That makes sense that it's this probably a condition that existed before that made them more susceptible, which is really interesting. It's like a latent autoimmune disease, which was only revealed upon infection. So in combination, these two articles point to two causes of severe COVID. Both are due to problems in the innate immune system, particularly interferon signaling but one is due to genetic errors that make the proteins of the signaling pathway dysfunctional, and one due to the presence of these autoantibodies that block the signaling pathway. So let's zoom out now and put this work in the bigger context of the moment. What are the clinical implications of these results? Do they point to different ways to treat COVID or prevent it?
1: Yes, I think the first lesson is that we really need to focus our attention on this pathway in terms of intervention. What this tells us is you need the interferons early. Okay, So this is a lot of practical implications of when would someone benefit from that. If you have a mutation and you're not making interferons, clearly the question is, can you bypass that by giving interferons? So except for the case where you actually have mutations in the receptor, so giving it is not gonna work, everything else you could potentially or theoretically give it and you can bypass the defects. So then for the second group of patients with the autoantibodies, knowing the autoantibodies, what they reacted to would be very useful because most people with autoantibodies to type 1 indifference, they have autoantibodies to alphas and omegas mainly because they're very uh, related structurally. They don't have autoantibodies to beta and beta can therefore be given and you don't have to worry about the autoantibody issue, okay? So again, if you have autoantibodies, If we know that ahead of time, should we be more aggressive about giving you type one interference early when it makes a difference? So those are like the immediate implications, but there's certainly other implications in terms of treatments.
0: Right, right. So knowing this, knowing this disposition would help inform the clinical treatment of these people. So how do you translate results like these into clinical practice. Like we have, this this is scientific research, fresh from the lab. It's, you know, pointing to differences in treatment for these people. How do you make that connection to actually changing clinical practice? I think one of the obvious questions right
1: now, people have exactly that. They're already trying to use this knowledge probably on an individual level. So the autoantibodies, if you're really sick. really, really sick and people have been throwing the kitchen sink at you and you're in the ICU with SARS-CoV-2, they can consider, are we going to do desperate measures like get rid of your autoantibodies? There's a procedure called plasmapheresis that can be done, and other things to get rid of autoreactive antibodies. I think people are already using this knowledge on a case-by-case basis. Then you really need a clinical trial afterwards, but, you know, People are already tempting to put this into practice.
0: Right. The clinical trial is key for determining that what you do has a significantly positive impact compared to the standard of care. And that's what's needed right now. It's like you have evidence that changing care would for these patients to target these either autoantibodies or genetic defects would improve, but you need the clinical trial to actually Provide the necessary level of evidence.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely. That really is necessary because you don't want to subject people to, you know, procedures and treatments that all have their own risks, right? On the other hand, there are sometimes with a pandemic situation you may not have the time, and trying to balance that, you know, in a particular case, it's difficult. Yeah.
0: So, will these auto antibodies? or these genetic errors possibly predispose people to respond to the vaccine differently is there any concern where that comes in
1: yeah i think um we're just starting to think about that and the answer is we don't know but obviously that is what needs to be tested some of these people that are in the study we're following them over time and the next thing will be offering them vaccination and seeing whether they respond to that appropriately is a big question.
0: I'd really like to talk about this amazing project and this major collaboration that carried out these studies. You know, the author lists on both papers were astronomically large, and this is an international cohort of researchers and patients. So I'd love to hear if you have any stories about how this was orchestrated or coordinated. This is a part of a collaboration that is centered around the
1: COVID Human Genetic Effort, which is an initiative that John Laurent Casanova at Rockefeller University, in INSERM and HHMI, as well as myself at NIAID co-direct and co-lead. And it's largely because we both worked in the field of inborn errors of virus susceptibility that led us to bring this effort together. It involves, hundreds of medical centers that participate and we see critically ill patients and they can collect samples and work with sequencing hubs worldwide who perform whole exome and whole genome sequencing. So the sequencing data is shared centrally and that allows for analysis, but the people who are involved in this consortium all have different research interests. And uh, it really draws upon the strengths expertise of each of the different groups. So it was important that um, people jump in and uh, do what they're good at, right? Uh, I think one of the key things is there also needs to be a leader. So I would have to say that Casanova's group was really important in providing the critical leadership because you need to align all your efforts in the right direction, right? Otherwise, you're not going to get stuff done.
0: I think it's so interesting to think of, you know, like in normal times, if you were doing this type of research, you would have like a grad student or a postdoc do each of these parts individually, and that could take their whole graduate career. You know, that could take two graduate students' careers. And what you have done is find this amazing and huge group of people where each person is doing what they're best at and collaborating together and sharing their data and really moving this project forward in a way that would have taken years into weeks and months. And I think that really speaks to the power of what science and collaboration can do today.
1: Yeah, it was really important. People trusted each other and they communicated well. And I think, yeah, it's important to do science the usual way, I think, especially for training purposes. But there are some situations where the way you operate has to be different.
0: Helen, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.